Hi Ventures, welcome back to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I'm your host Freddie Cocker and this podcast is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone but especially men and boys can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas and start conversations. Each episode I check in with a special guest. We have a natter and a chat about all things mental health as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. My special guest for today's episode is a man from a very important men's mental health organisation doing some hugely important work. James's Place is a charity which offers free, life-saving treatment to suicidal men in their centres, which are currently in Liverpool and London. The charity was founded by Claire Milford Haven and Nick Wentworth Stanley following the tragic death of their son James in 2006. Ten days after a minor operation, James tragically took his own life. He had sought help for his anxiety and suicidal thoughts, but didn't find the urgent help he so desperately needed. Claire and Nick were determined to prevent other families from losing loved ones and set up James's place to provide support for men in suicidal crisis whose needs are not met by existing services. James's place goal and purpose is to stop men dying by suicide. They do this by intervening at the point of suicide for these men and their professional therapists get quickly to the heart of a man's suicidal crisis and hopefully help him solve it. They are unique because their treatment is evidence-based and proven. It is also quick to access, which is a massive problem in accessing support and the centres have been built to exude calmness, safety and are a non-clinical environment. The therapy itself is delivered by trained professional therapists and they have treated over 1,500 suicidal men since 2018, delivering over 7,500 therapy sessions. The Liverpool Centre has seen 1,250 men walk through its doors, whilst its London Centre, which opened in May 2022, has already seen 350 men through its doors too. Andy Noon, who I'm checking in with today, is the head of the Liverpool Centre and has been on his own powerful mental health journey to get to where he is today. In this episode, we discuss the work he does at James's Place and the work it does for men, the factors and triggers that bring these men to their suicidal state, and what James's Place does to help them overcome it, get back to leading a normal life, and most importantly, in the words of James's Place, find hope for the future. We also discuss the importance of avoiding terms like toxic masculinity in unpicking why these men have not been able to find their release valve why despite them feeling suicidal, the vast majority are not mentally ill and are simply responding to negative trauma events in their life, such as relationship breakdown, grief, unemployment or other triggers. And this is something I discussed with George from the Tim Men too. For Andy's mental health, he has gone through two periods of his life where he experienced intense mental health difficulties. The first was in 2013, where he began experiencing anxiety and panic attacks. He also failed his university degree, but out of shame and stigma, he did not disclose it to anyone. He put on a lot of weight and was bullied for it as well. He also started doing a job he did not want to do long term and felt, in his words, stuck. The second period came in 2020, which came from a culmination of events, including a relationship breakdown, grief from a family member who took their own life, a physical injury which made him bedbound for three months, and workplace stress. We discussed both these periods how they affected his mental health and how he recovered from them. 
So this is how my conversation with the great Andy Noon went. Andy, welcome to the Just Checking Pod. Thank you very much for letting me check in with you. When I came across the unbelievable work that James's place does, I was very keen to get someone from the organisation. After a lot of emails, here we are. You somehow managed to get a football cliche into your blog on the James's Place website. So I think you may listen to the Football Clichés podcast, but I'm not entirely sure. How are you, mate, on this Friday morning? Yeah, I'm good. Thanks, Freddie. Thanks for having me on today to represent myself and James's place. I'm really looking forward to, to being part of what you've got going on on the podcast. Excellent, mate. We've got loads to talk about and you're a scouser, so you probably love a chat. So without further ado, are you ready to start the show and talk all about it? Yeah, let's go. Let's go. We're going to start your pod by talking about your professional journey and the work you do at James's Place, mate. So tell me how you ended up as head of the Liverpool Centre, how the organisation started, maybe its goals and objectives, and the very important work it does to help men who are suicidal. Well, first of all, I started in James's Place in July of last year, just the start of the new year now, wasn't it? So I started in post in early July and I started in the role as a mental health nurse. So I'm the head of centre, overseeing the sort of clinical work that goes on in the centre. Before then, obviously from qualifying as a mental health nurse in 2018, I've worked in various clinical settings, inpatient mental health wards, environments, community mental health teams, before starting a community interest company focused on positive mental health in the Nosley and Merseyside area. And then I've seen the opportunity to come and manage and, and lead the team at James's place, something very close to my heart from a professional point of view and also a personal point of view. So when I thought about the job, I thought that was something that would definitely make myself proud to represent the men of Liverpool and the North West and families as well. So mm. I took on, well, I applied for the role and was fortunate enough to get that role and feel very lucky to have done so. And the organisation itself is a charity that was set up in 2008. And it was following the sad death of James Wentworth Stanley in 2006, who unfortunately took his own life after seeking support, which he unfortunately was not able to get. Um, the charity itself, Nick's, uh, sorry, James's family, Nick and Claire, his parents, wanted to open a centre for men who were in James's position to be able to access that support if they needed to. And in 2016, the sort of planning stage started for that to happen. With 2018, the first centre opening up in Liverpool, which has been open now for five years, supporting over 1,250 men in that time, which is remarkable. And following that as well, and following the amount of men that have accessed the support there, a new centre's opened up in London, and there's more plans as well for opening up new centres in Newcastle, also in Birmingham and Bristol over the next couple of years. So the charity's really sort of pushing across the country, and the purpose behind that is to make sure that Half the men within the country are within travel distance of a James's Place Centre, which is amazing. And I suppose the objectives of the organisation and the charity are to support men who are in suicidal crisis. So someone who is seeing suicide as a as an option to deal with the circumstances that they face with or the, the problems that they have. And people are really seeing suicide as an option. And, and we want to make sure that we've got an alternative solution for people to come and get quick access to therapy with professional trained counsellors or professionals and to make sure that we offer an environment that provides hope to that person. Often the men that we will see are in a period where they've lost hope and we want to be part of that journey that remind men that there is hope and there is recovery, recovery as possible. When we spoke off air, you were keen to stress that James's place is about intervening at the point of crisis for men with suicidality or about to take their own life or may have done it before. However, 
and this is something I spoke about with George from the 10 men on my previous episode, they may not necessarily have long-term mental health conditions. Some might, but it's not a criteria. They may have just external trauma or life events that have made them feel suicidal. Can you just explain that distinction for me? I suppose a lot of the men that we see who are in a what what we call a, an acute suicidal crisis are often overwhelmed by life events or I like to call them curveballs that come in and can blindside you. So, say for example, we might see men who have gone through a bit of a an ordeal in terms of a relationship breakdown, or job loss at the same time or similar time, or people might experience I don't know death, financial issues stress at work and we can often become quite overwhelmed with them experiences especially if we're not familiar with being able to express our emotions Mm. or being able to be in an environment where we feel open to talk it can be a little bit foreign I suppose to some of us and we often see men who are in that situation where they're completely overwhelmed and usually we see men and I've been there myself something I know that we'll get into where I thought I kept it to myself thinking that I was going there was something wrong with me or I was going crazy or whatever, you know, where they were coming into my mind. People can start to feel like they're not normal. There's something wrong with them mentally when, in essence, we can become overwhelmed. Often related to people that I'm working with in the same sense as if you ran a marathon one day and you're a marathon runner, you know, I'm sure you can recover after a day or two. But if you ran 30 marathons back to back physically, you're going to be shot to pieces. You know, no, you're not be, Kevin Sinfield. Yeah, you're going to be breaking <laughs> down with injury. You're going to be fatigued. You're going to be worn out. And it's the same applies with our mind if we give it the same respect as our body, I suppose. If we're going through these traumatic events or stressful environment or whatever that might be, that pressure that's coming on us, we might be able to do that for a short period. But if we're doing it for an enduring period, you know, it's only a good matter of time before that battery runs out or we become mentally fatigued or mentally exhausted, I suppose. Remarkably, Unlike and unfortunately like the current mental health care system, you don't have waiting lists and you see any man who comes in within 48 working hours. Does that allow you to save more lives than if they had to wait a month or even a week before seeing? Because time is really of the essence, isn't it? Yeah, timing is absolutely crucial. It's a massive part of our model at James's place. That rapid access to therapy is so important to us because we know that that 48-hour window that we make sure that so we receive a referral for a man and we feel we're the right place to support that man, that, that referral will be looked at that day and a decision will be made on that referral. And if we do feel we're the right place, we'll make contact and offer that person a welcome assessment within 48 working hours. And that's because we know that when people seek support, whether that be for a suicidal crisis, whether that be at A&E or that be at a GP surgery, we know that 48 hours is a crucial timing. And we know that after that 48 hours, it's more likely for someone to make an attempt on the life if they haven't received support. So that's why we've sort of set that window there, which is obviously a very quick turnaround, considering the, the long waiting list that we, we're all aware of in the country. But that's a crucial part of what we do. At James's places, make sure that people are sat in front of us in a very quick turnaround to start mm. getting to the root cause of what's causing the crisis, I suppose. And when I spoke with you and the lovely Gemma from the comms team off air, she described the centres as like someone's really nice house. So why did you or maybe the powers that be make the decision to avoid a clinical environment? And how does it make the men feel safe and valued and feel like they can trust you and not ashamed of coming in too? I think you've just touched on a a key word there, trust. We do know that there's a lot of barriers. There's a lot of great services out there, of course, but we do know there's a lot of barriers to men and anybody, I suppose, access and support. An environment is something that is key. We do know that people who go into sort of 
clinical settings can often feel like a barrier to them opening up and talking. And I suppose building that rapport with the professional they're talking to, the, the person who's in front of them. So we wanted to make sure that it was an environment that is welcoming to people and it makes people want to share. It makes people comfortable enough to be able to share what's going on, which can be very sensitive for some people, especially the men who have never spoken before. We know how mm. important the environment is. That's what we made sure. When I first walked in, I couldn't believe how the calm and presence about James's place, you just felt it straight away. And we just made sure that's the case. So when people are welcomed into the centre, people go into the welcome area, which is a really warm room, and just to, for that person to ground themselves, I suppose, and get a drink. Mm. And just feel the calmness of the place before they go and start that process of discussing the sensitive things that are going on for them. And but we've got to know that you know the environment that we're working in on the outside as well. Liverpool is a very deprived area. We've got to know the men that we're working with, mm. and say in the Liverpool centre in particular, and the environment that we're in is in on the outskirts of town. It's in Catherine Street. It's a lovely area. It's a lovely building. And when men come there, they're, they're often surprised. I was surprised myself, to be honest with you, because I think people are expecting this clinical setting with, I don't know, people in white coats or something when that's not actually the case. And when people see that, I think it helps to build that trust with people, with the charity itself and us as professionals providing the support. We both know, Andy, that not all men will be helped by talking. A lot will, some won't. And I'm very much a big advocate on this podcast and then about men finding their release valve. But we also know that not all men are as articulate stereotypically about their emotions as women can be. And now you talked about how one tool you use to help men who aren't able to articulate how they feel can use a set of cards instead. Tell me about this and how it helps them. Yeah, so at James' Place, we use an intervention called Lay Your Cards on the Table. So that pretty much is a couple of decks of cards in order to open up that intervention, open up that talking therapy, help the person, help us, I suppose, to start unpicking what's going on. As you mentioned there, a lot of us don't know how to articulate what's going on for the first time, especially. And the cards that we use can really help us with that. Let's say, for example, on the first session, first two sessions possibly, we look at what's going on now for the person using a set of cards so rather than me relying or one of the therapists relying on the person being able to say, right, this is going on and this is happening and this is how I'm feeling, we give someone small decks of cards and they'll be able to unpick their thought process, what's going on. So say, for example, a card in there might be no one cares or it might be they'd be better off without me. There are often things that people will pick out them cards, say, for example. And then after that, we delve into that a little bit more. So to get an understanding of that thought process that's going on, and then we start looking at physical sensations because often people that we mm. see you are feeling trapped and stuck. You know, the anxiety is a big part of the presentation and physical symptoms is obviously a big part of anxiety. So giving people an understanding because they're some of the symptoms that start making people feel like they're going crazy mm. or they're not normal because they're experiencing a faster heartbeat or the sweating or whatever that might be. So we're better to start unpicking that. And then a massive part of the intervention, we start looking at the cards around the emotions and psychologically how situations are impacting us. So say, for example, someone might feel humiliated or someone might feel trapped. Someone might feel lonely. So we'll start picking out these cards. And some of these as well, the men that we work with, I don't think, anyways, my personal opinion, I don't think they would necessarily just offer that information. But with a card, it makes that process a little bit easier to be able to put that down without having to maintain eye contact with someone and talk about something such such as feeling lonely, say, for example, or feeling sad. 
being tearful. So I think that makes that process a little bit easier. And then the last part of that, what's happening now is looking at how is manifesting someone's life, how is their actions and behaviour resulted based on the thoughts, the physical feelings and the psychological feelings and, and emotions. And that really helps to sort of see that visual aid as well, to see what's going on, not just talk it out and understand about it, but seeing it laid out in front of them can be really helpful. And then obviously we've got other decks of cards then as the intervention goes on. So we work with people for a six to eight week period, usually delivering six to eight sessions. And over that period, we would use the decks of cards. And in between, we do what's called mini interventions. If a particular topic will be useful, say, for example, it could be stress management, we'd look at incorporating a mini intervention, such as the stress bucket, to really help that person unpick what their current stresses are, but also how to release that stress from their so-called bucket. I love that. And I think it really dispels the myth that maybe some listeners might have had thinking about like a Bruce Forsyth price is right. Like, do you feel worse than I'd hide than a queen? No. I want to move on to language now, mate, because language is really important for how we talk to men in distress and about men's mental health. Now, I don't think that using terms that victim blame men like toxic masculinity are helpful anymore. I used to use it. I've accepted my mistake now. Mm-hmm. What is your perspective on this? I suppose it's something that is, has obviously been mentioned over the last couple of years. And I do think it can be damaging, not just that term, but other terms as well. You know, we've heard things in the past, you know, man up and that expectation of men and that stigma with men that need to be a certain way and showing that vulnerability is seen as a weakness. And we often see that. Well, they say show weakness, don't they? They say it's like, no, vulnerability is a strength. It's like, it's important we show weakness. It's like, no, your language here is completely wrong. That's it. it really annoys me that in mainstream media outlets. That's it. And people interpret it as weakness when it's not. It's vulnerability and it's actually a strength to show that. You're completely right. And I think that these damaging terms can make people feel disconnected from communities. And we know that's a key driver mm. towards suicide. And we, as human beings, whether, you you know, regardless of what gender you are, being involved in the community or being connected is really important. And if we have men that are going through these life events that always seem to come all at the same time, and then also there's a sort of feeling of, you know, things getting said that we're, we're picking up on and we're hearing we're a little bit more sensitive, I suppose, to the words that are being used in society. And if that can start making us feel more disconnected from a community or from society, that can really add to the, the turmoil that we're facing. So I do think mm. that it's, um, you know, that that term and, and other terms as well it can be quite damaging mm. to people to, to describe people in, in a general sense. There is also a narrative at the moment, mate, which gets trotted out every awareness month, every awareness week. I'm sure you're aware of it too, pardon the pun, about men's mental health, which is like, we just need men to talk and why are men not talking? And I find this repeated rhetoric quite tiresome because A, it's been going on as long as I've been doing Venn, which is 2017. But there are also clearly men talking, but society isn't listening to them. And I remember you said something really powerful off air, which is like, if you give men the trust and the space to talk, they will. So what is the truth from your work at James's Place? Absolutely. And listen, we do know, and I know that it is difficult for men, and we do come across a, a lot of men. The barriers are very, very uh, strong for, for men to talk about what's going on. So we're not blind to that. But from my experience and from the experience working at James's Place, I'm sure the others would agree with me, is that if we set the right environments and we have the right people in place, we have quick, rapid access to treatment, then we're setting everything up in order to make that transition for men easier. And if, I believe if we set the right environment for men, 
we will talk. If we're in the wrong environment, that's where it can go wrong. Or obviously, if you've had a bad experience. But if we set everything Push up... Push back months, weeks, years, mate, even forever for a lot of men, if they have that first experience and it goes badly. Absolutely. Yeah. I suppose we often see quite a lot of men who have had a poor experience and mm. so they're quite ambivalent about sharing what's going on for them, obviously, because of, you know, they might have been hurt in the past when they've tried to do it or they might have something has made them feel worse, say, for example. But I think if you set the right environment and that, that a big part of that is trust. We've got to mm. make sure that from that moment a man turns up at that door, we know how difficult that is for that person to do, especially for the first time. And right throughout the intervention, really, it's already took a lot for that person to be there. So, and we respect that. So we've got to make sure our job, I suppose, especially for that welcome assessment, is to make sure that person feels comfortable. We start building that rapport and that trust straight away. For them to be sat there going, this is the place and this is the person that I feel comfortable enough to be able to share what's going on. That's a crucial part of what we do. And I think that's what we do right across the team. You know, remarkable, whether it's in Liverpool, London, and obviously the new team getting together in Newcastle. That I think that's what we do brilliantly. And I think that would show in the work that we do if you spoke to the men or some of the men that, that we've supported in this time, that connection that we can get with men straight away because we've worked really hard. And in the Liverpool centre, say, for example, we've got Leah, who is the centre manager, and she looks after the centre, make sure all the processes are in place, make sure that the transition for men engaging in therapy is as smooth as possible. And she does a lot of work you know, with the whole team as well in making sure that environment's right and all them processes are in place to make it a smooth transition for people. Before we move on to your CIC, which is Nursing and Evolving Mindset, as the men get better and start to recover, hopefully, they will change. So how do you adapt that to meet them where they are, not where you met them? So we measure right throughout what we do. So I think that makes us quite unique in a sense as well. We've got a really good partnership with John Moore's University in Liverpool and they sort of evaluate all the work that we do. So we measure psychological distress and we also measure something called entrapments, which we know is linked to suicidality. And we measure them two things and we monitor right throughout the intervention. And typically what we find is that we have a massive improvement in people's, you know, reduction in both of them areas. So we'll monitor that with the person, who, who, the, the man that we're supporting during the intervention. And what we know is that we were really successful of taking men out of a crisis so people obviously come to us who are in that crisis point and really considering taking their own lives or have recently attempted to take their own life. And our intervention helps people to move out of that. So as people go through that intervention, people start to feel more confident about themselves. People start to feel better. You can normally see it within someone, you know, you can see it in their eyes, you can see it in the body language. And we celebrate that as well throughout the intervention. Each session, we'll have a sort of bit of a check-in where things are up to. And we celebrate that. It's obviously a very short time that we've got to work with someone. Six to eight weeks isn't much time, but we do see rapid changes straight away. And we start planning someone's future with them during the intervention. We start looking at what's next. You know, some people do need further support, whether that be from a third sector organisation or someone might need NHS support following our intervention. But a lot of the time, people feel that the interventions really help them with that time in their life. But we look at setting up things in their own life in terms of the environment or the things that might be stressing them say you know financially we'll make sure that there's some form of support for them in the future and so we, we help people throughout that transition period and i suppose we, as i said we celebrate with them it's a huge part of it and it, that, i suppose for all of us that's the most rewarding part when you see someone coming in who's so distressed and when they're leaving 
can be six weeks later and they're almost like a different person. A lot of people will say that they feel back to themselves. So that can be a really rewarding thing for us as well. But more importantly for, for the person, the person who uh, was supporting. Let's talk briefly about your work with nursing and evolving mindset. So tell me, first of all, why you wanted to qualify as a nurse as stereotypically and sadly, it still isn't seen as something men usually do, although hopefully that is changing. Yeah, so... For me personally, I, I was a support worker in learner disability, first of all, when I, I turned 18. Intense job. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was. And by chance, I got moved to another service that was in mental health, which I didn't necessarily have a, an interest with at the time. It was more I wanted to support people with autism and learning disabilities. But I quickly found I had a, a really strong passion for supporting people in their own home who had mental health difficulties. And throughout that role, I always felt that it was more that I would like to learn. There was more I would like to do. So I was supporting people who were in their own home who'd already had a quite a significant and complex journey before them. I've started feeling more drawn to the, the start of that process and really helping people at that point. And I suppose some of the, the people that I was supporting at the time, I seen the trust that they had in their community psychiatric nurses where they'd open up, see them once a month and open up and tell them everything's going on. It's like your barber or your driving instructor, yeah, isn't it? You tell, you tell them the whole life. <laughs> and I was there every day and I felt like I didn't have that connection or the ability to be able to, the skills to be able to do it, I suppose. So that's what drove me to wanting to go into nursing. I just found, you know, a real passion for helping people who, who had complex mental health and enduring illnesses. And I started the programme at John Moores University. And looking at the figures of here earlier, I think it's still around 11% in general across nursing for men but I do know from conversations that I've had at least that more men are going into the field of nursing well that's great you know yeah. in adult nursing and child nursing as well and mm. disability nursing which is great and I do think it's something that you know should be encouraged more especially in colleges and sixth forms across the country the idea of I suppose positive role models going into these places mm. saying that this is an option for you to be able to do because it's crucial for men to be able to, to be in that field in order to offer our skills that we have as well. And it's a very rewarding role for anybody mm. who's doing it, I suppose. That's the reason why I wanted to go into nursing. I was just drawn to it and I seen, it was funny enough, it was a male CPN that I used to see and it was him I had that first conversation with about you know the practicality, about going to do nursing because I'd already something we might touch on. I'd already failed a degree. So I was quite nervous about starting another one. But once I spoke to him and got that reassurance, I suppose, and as soon as I started, I knew I was in the right area and he was doing mm. the right thing. Reading your blog on the James's Place website, over 2,000 people have received free support and the organisation that you created has gone on to working closely with Mersey Care NHS Foundation Trust to support a reduction in readmission to secondary services. Have you ever taken a step back and just recognised that achievement and the impact that you've had on people, not just in that role, but also James's Place? I don't do it enough. I'm trying. <laughs> I'm trying. You've got to stay humble, but you've got to give yourself credit sometimes. Right? I know. I tell everyone, you know, every day of my life, I'm telling people, giving people the best advice, and I don't necessarily follow it myself. But um, Always the way. <laughs> I, I try my best to. I'm someone who, there was a point in my life where I didn't feel like I was achieving, and it felt like I was letting myself down, and I had to raise my own standards, and I think what comes with that is that always pressing forward and trying to achieve more and trying to raise standards, maintain the standards and then raise them standards again. And I think with that, I can be, I suppose, guilty of not doing enough reflection on, on the work that we've done. But that being said, we are in, you know, what evolving mindset before I started James Place and still we're, we're incredibly proud of what, 
we've been here to do from an idea that come about from myself and my brother Phil, just from an idea through a conversation. And, and we just said, well, why don't we give something a try, put our skills together and do try and do something for our community. And, and I suppose at the time it was something to do as a, as a hobby or just out of a bit of an interest. And it's grew arms, legs, fingers, toes, grew everything <laughs> since that day. And I think some of the people in our lives, is, you know, because the, the logo of Evolving Mindset's a, a light bulb with a brain inside. I think some people have said to us, I wish that light bulb never come on because we've spent that much time and energy on it. But it's been an unbelievable journey, you know, which has been recognised as well. But we set up with Evolving Mindset saying that if we can help one person with the programme that we designed, you know, it'd be worthwhile. And obviously a lot more people than, than one person has had that support and some of it's been life-changing for people and it's um it's very rewarding to think about that that you know that was the purpose of why it was set up before we reflect in 2022 so two years ago now your work was also recognized with evolving mindset winning the merseyside independent health and well-being business of the year you personally were also nominated and shortlisted for the rising star award the nursing times awards so they aren't the be all and end all but was it nice and special to be formally recognised in that way? Well, Evolving Mindset actually won the same award in 2023 as well. Oh, did it? Oh, yeah, okay. before then I spoke to you. Should have edited the blog, mate. <laughs> I know, I know. So two years on the run, Evolving Mindset have won the Merseyside Independent Business of the Year Award for Health and Wellbeing, which is, as I said, it's, it's absolutely remarkable when you think about it. Because obviously a big part of the community interest company is to be a company and to work with organisations to deliver training at a fee, which is then reinvested back into the community work. You know, it does operate as a business. And yeah, it's remarkable. And obviously being nominated and shortlisted for the individual award was something that completely shocked me. I'm not the type of person who is used to that or sort of being in any sort of limelight. So it was a bit of a strange experience for me, but one that I relished because I thought I deserve it. I'm proud of it. But it was really nice. I know that the nomination for the individual award come from Edgehill University as well because the work that I've done with the organisation, not just me, you know, the organisation that I was involved in, Evolving Mindset, we'd done with Edgehill University, giving opportunities to students, to student nurses, to be able to learn about mental health support and mental health care in the third sector, which was quite rare. Usually, you know, placements would either be NHS-based or they might be, I don't know, charities, but linked in with the NHS. But to do a placement with Evolver Mindset in community and really the private areas as well was something that was a little bit unique. So I think that work that we've done really helped. And obviously I got a nomination from Edgehill University, which was incredible. So I was very um, grateful. I didn't win the award, but it was just great to be there on the night. And very inspired and hearing the amount of people across the country that are doing the work that they're doing is, is unbelievable. So it was um, a very proud achievement. Yeah, definitely. Let's reflect on your professional journey, mate. So, so far, what has been your proudest achievement? Wow. Um, I suppose it's being able to adapt into the role at James's place. You know, obviously, it's with coming into the centre, a big part of what we were tasked to do. So, as I mentioned, Leah before started in the management role as well. And we both started at a similar time. And a big task for us was to increase the numbers of people of men who knew about us and been able to refer to us. And, you know, not just in Liverpool as well, in the Northwest. So if people can travel to us, we'll support people. If As long as people can travel to us safely mm. and we can engage in the therapy effectively, we'll support someone. So we have had people from, you know, Birmingham, from Wales, you know, accessing the support. And 
a big part of that is making sure that areas, GP surgeries, A&E, A&Es on the outskirts of Liverpool know about us as well. And so we've done a lot of work over the last couple of months on that side of things. And I suppose when we've last looked at the figures, we've had a 36% increase in self-referrals in the last quarter. You know, it'd be easy for me to say, you know, that some of the work, the therapy that I've delivered or, you know, seeing the work that we've done. But I think I'm quite proud of that, of the whole team, of all of us pulling together to make sure that more men are aware about us. And that comes obviously from the communication team as well, the fundraising team. So right across the organisation as a team, we've really worked hard on, on making sure more men are aware about us and we're getting more referrals from the areas on the outskirts of Liverpool or you know across the northwest that are coming to access the support with us. So to see that increase, especially in self-referrals, is crucial because that's something that we're doing right to make men go, I'm going to go on that website and I'm going to make a referral to that place and I feel they're the right place to support me. That makes us really proud to have such a a huge increase in a short amount of time. And as a final question before we move on, what has working there and maybe your wider professional journey taught you about yourself? Another good question. I'd say about myself, I already knew I was quite resilient and it's been, I suppose, a difficult personal time as well since starting the job in July. There's been a, a number of different personal events that have been thrown at me while starting a new position which is obviously intense you know the, the men that we're working with it's an intense role and, and so it should be because we take it very serious the situations that men are faced in and the standards that we need to deliver to so I suppose the resilience about being able to manage unexpected things coming up say for example or you know a, a huge increase in the men that we see being able to make sure that we prioritise that then, you know, getting men in quickly and making sure we're providing that, you know, support up to the right standard. I suppose that has shown me a, a lot of resilience about myself and being able to lead the team through difficult periods, I suppose. We talked all about your work at James's Place and your professional journey. Let's go deeper and talk about your own mental health journey, Andy. So I ask all my special guests on this topic this question first. Take me back to early life in Liverpool, teenage years, and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences? Who's the Andy we meet here? I suppose growing up, I wouldn't be able to say or pinpoint any times that was I realised other than, you know, a little bit of worrying. But I think that's, you know, the same for most people. At the time, I really enjoyed it. My childhood, amazing family around me, and I was very lucky in, in that sense. Even though I grew up in Nosley, which is one of the most deprived areas in the whole country, which is on the outskirts of Liverpool, in somewhere called Halewood. I couldn't say that there's any difficulties. I was very proud to represent my community when I was younger. I got involved in a lot of community work and, and I suppose stayed in the right path. There's a few key people in my life that when I look back, they were key in making sure I went down the right path because it could have been, you know, I could have easily went down a different route when I think about it. But yeah, I suppose I grew up with four older brothers. Oh, wow. That's one of five. five. Yeah, so. Jesus. I'm one of four. I'm four. I thought yeah, I was There's four, four of my older brothers. I think there's seven years between them. God, you poor um, mum, mate. <laughs> it was seven years between the four of them and then I was 17 years later. So I've grew up with four older brothers in the house. And wow. I suppose when I think about it, it's only something I've reflected on recently. I always wanted to fit in and I always wanted to please them, I suppose, in order to be part of, of what's going on. And that's still to this day, I, you know, I love it when we're all together. You know, I, don't, I can't think of anything better when, you know, especially my mum and dad and my four brothers, we're all still close, even if we don't talk to each other for a little period, we're all still close. So that's really nice. But even growing up, I always wanted to fit in with them and try to be a little bit older than what I am. And I suppose now it, there's a few signs of me, I suppose I can be guilty at times. I've got to catch myself sometimes when I, I'll put other people before myself 
in order to please them, mm, in order to fit in yeah. a little bit. So it's not a minor. As I said, when I, I was very lucky growing up in that sense, with grew up in a home with my mum and dad and you know family around. I mean, a lot of a lot of people aren't as fortunate as that. So I can't pinpoint anything back then that would lead to mental health. The bulk of your mental health journey and the difficulties in it, mate, centres on two periods of your life. So the first came in 2013 when you started experiencing anxiety and panic attacks, which you had no idea what they were. I was the same. I didn't really even realise that my panic attacks were panic attacks until about 21 years old. And I was like, oh, right. So all those things that were stress was actually panic attacks. But there we go. So just tell me about the life events that surrounded this period and how the anxiety at that time impacted your mental health. Yeah, so in 2013, there was a lot going on. Whereas at the time, I didn't quite, uh, was able to pinpoint that. But I had a lot going on. 2013, as you mentioned, I started getting some symptoms of anxiety that I know now. But at the time, it's the first time you've ever experienced something, you're thinking all sorts. So I remember the uh, first part was chest pain, heavy breathing, quick heartbeat. And obviously what come along with that, I don't know whether it was psychological or not, but I got a pain in my arm. I was having a heart attack. To me, there was no one could convince me anything different. I remember that's the first time I ever had a panic attack. And I went to A&E over there. And I think that happened twice, quite quick succession. But I didn't want to tell people. I didn't want people to worry that I was having a heart attack. Or I also didn't want people thinking I was overreacting about something. So I told myself it was things like indigestion. I told me whatever it was to try and reassure myself at the time. But how scared I was was, was unbelievable. And I suppose it started to get a little bit worse, especially because I kept it to myself. And I started having more panic attacks. And I started noticing when I was in a one-to-one conversation with someone, the room would slow down, say, for example. You'd disassociate, maybe. Yeah, and they were talking, but I weren't quite getting... It was panic, what was going on. And I just wanted to get out of the room and escape the room. But sometimes you couldn't if you were in an important meeting or a supervision or something, or you're supporting someone. I was a support worker and you're stuck in that situation. It it was really difficult at times. And the more it went on and the longer it went on, I started convincing myself that there was something wrong with me, that there was something I was going mad. And if I tell people what was going on, would they end up in a psychiatric hospital? Would I end up getting on medication, on drugs? Or, you know, would people judge me for being weak? Or all these things, this self-stigmatisation was going on for me at that time and it got worse and worse the more I kept it in and once I did talk about it and let it go you know when people talk about a weight coming off your shoulders there's a reason for that because it did it genuinely felt like all the tension and stress just dropped out of my shoulders and not that it was easy to do and not that it was easy afterwards to do but it was a lot more manageable because I wasn't as scared about it it was like that acceptance of when you say it out loud it's real then But with that comes strength and with that comes the ability to be able to understand it and manage it. Whereas when it was inside, it was was something that just gripped me completely and Mm. it wouldn't let go. And then as soon as I took that step, which was probably the hardest thing I did at that time, afterwards it was like, that wasn't something to be as worried about and as tense about. And does that process then become easier to bear to do? Now I'm, I'm sat here on a podcast 11 years later just openly talking about these things because there's nothing to be afraid of. We're all human beings and we all go through these things. But at the time, especially as a, what, what age was I there, 21, you feel like you're the only person going through it. Mm. And you're not. I wasn't. And you start finding out more people you talk to, people say, I've, I've had that or I've had a similar experience. And you, 
not that you want people to be going through that, but at the same time, you take that some form of reassurance from it and some form of comfort that you're not the only one experiencing these things. And it just shows how powerful our, our mind is and our brain is, I suppose. And it can be quite comforting to hear other people going through similar things. You spoke earlier in the pod about failing a university degree, and this was something that you didn't disclose either. So you weren't disclosing a lot of things. They were all building up this cocktail of, you know, I always describe it as putting like a Mentos in a Coke bottle. If you uh, yeah. if you don't get it out, it's just going to explode out like yeah, a volcano. So if you had disclosed it to the right person when you were struggling, do you think you'd have been able to get the right academic support and maybe mental health support to arrest that slide? How do you reflect on it? I think... There's a few parties. I think there was a lot of internal pressure I had on myself because at the time I was the first person in my family to go to university and it was such a huge thing and something I'd worked very hard to do. And But I think I quickly realised after my first year, I realised I wasn't doing a degree that I really wanted to do, but I'd already made that sort of commitment, student loans that come with that, the pressure to be able to do do the course, do the work, but the course wasn't right for me as well, which I think added into it. But it was also, a lot of it, it was sports science, so a lot of it was maths-based. And I'm, academically, I'm not the most gifted. I work hard and I've got a lot of will, but academically, it's, it's not my strong point. And I struggled with the work and it was hard to be able to admit that. So I kept it to myself and pretended that it, everything was going quite well. But I suppose looking back now, if it did go and speak to me tutors, you know, if I could talk to myself back then, I would be going to talk to my tutors to see if there's something alternative, maybe a, a change over to a different course, maybe a year out or something rather than letting it just sort of lapse. And especially now, I know I do like quite a lot of work with the universities, especially around the Liverpool area. And I know there's a lot of support for students in terms of health and wellbeing, but also in terms of academic support, you know, it's a massive priority for the universities. So I would definitely encourage anyone who's listening who might be in a similar position to, to me at the time to go and seek support from a tutor, even talk it out, even if that the same outcome is that you, you leave the course, at least go and explore the options and talk about the support that's available to you. At this point, you also mentioned to me that you had put on a lot of weight and yeah. you were starting to get bullied for it. Was that by your university peers? Was it by someone else? And, and what form of abuse did it take? Was it purely social or something else? It was, I did put on a, a lot of weight at that time. I suppose like growing up, I was always active, football, boxing, Muay Thai, you know, whatever that sport was. It was Proper scout sports, that is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I, I mean, from a family of football players and football fans so football was my number one jiu-jitsu even whatever that is you know the sport I was there and I suppose when I got to the age of 18 I stopped doing a lot of that started going out drinking a lot more especially when I went to university and what come with that is a lot of kebabs a lot of pizzas at the end of nights out and got to a point where it was three four nights a week I was going out and drinking which at the time was great it was having a lot of fun but it was having a massive detrimental effect on my physical health and something I probably didn't acknowledge at the time, definitely my mental health as well. And I did put a lot of weight on, so I went up to 21 stone, I think it was. So in the process of the last 10 years, I've lost seven and a half stone from that point. But And I wasn't as fit, even though I made sort of excuses as big boned and all stuff like that. I'm not sure if it, it, the way bullying's right, but I did experience a lot of negativity towards that. I did experience a lot of name calling. I did experience a lot of changes with people. To so say, for example, it would be out to, with friends and remarks and comments that mm. I suppose people don't realise when it's banter. 
But especially if you're a sensitive person, you might hear something and you really home in because you've already got that insecurity about yourself. That was going on quite a lot, you know, about being called, I don't know, maybe fatty or it might be making a joke about having a pair of boobs or whatever that might be at the time. There's a lot of that going on, which I'd often laugh off. But inside, that was sort of really hitting me insecurities, I suppose, about myself because I felt I'd failed because I've always been quite fit and all of a sudden I wasn't in control of that part of my life and it really did impact me at the time. And I suppose as well at that time when, of talking to talking to, to women, even say for I've got mm. some quite negative comments, which I suppose looking back it reinforced how I felt about myself at the time. It really destroys that myth that women want the dad bod, eh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I only want the dad bod if it's Leonardo DiCaprio's got a dad bod. <laughs> yeah, especially at university, at a young age, it was you know some negative comments that would really hit home, I suppose. That really did impact me. At this point as well, after you had dropped out, you started doing a job you didn't like, and in your words, you felt very stuck. So just tell me how that felt, and... Having obviously worked in James's place where you hear a lot of times from other men who say they felt stuck, did that give you some commonality too? It did. I suppose seeing the amount of men who are stuck and the suicidality and their mental health or their thought processes have changed because of feeling stuck and feeling trapped, it really made me realise and when I've reflected back on key moments of my life, 2013 and something I'm sure we'll get into in 2022, 2021, it really sort of shows when I was talking before about people not necessarily being mentally unwell, but feeling trapped and feeling stuck. That brings anxiety with it. You can either bring that fight, flight, or freeze response that comes with it. And that's what we'll often see. And that's how we reflect back on periods of my life when I felt stuck and trapped. That was where the anxiety come. Is it coming from like not being in your control? So like a relationship breakdown, it's not in your control. Or grief, it's not in your control. Like unemployment, like you can't, you can't go and get that job back. Yeah. You have to go find a next job. But at the time, it doesn't really feel like you're in control of it, does it? That's it. Because what comes yeah. with a lot is a lot of indecision. And if we can't decide on something because it's impossible, things are out of our control. We're sort of stuck in this grey area in between. And that's when I look back, that's where I was. I was in this grey area, not sure whether to go that way or that way. And I suppose at that crossroads and not being able to see that that road in front of either way and you don't know which way to turn and you can often freeze in them moments and that comes a lot of a lot of changes in your thought process of feeling stuck there and that pressure that you can put on yourself and I suppose that inner critic can start coming in in them moments whether mm. to w- which way to go so I definitely relate to a lot of the situations men, men are in, in in them key times of my life as well let's fast forward to the second crisis because we're not going to talk about all the details but what were the factors that led to this crisis and who's the Andy we meet at this point? So the second time in my life, I suppose, because after the third time I spoke about in 2013, obviously the anxiety, the certain ways I learned to cope to manage that anxiety. And a big part of that was getting into exercise again and really good routine. Obviously, I lost a lot of weight on the back of that. And eating well, looking after my shed. Uh, I like to call this on my sleep, my hydration, my exercise and my diet. Oh, I thought you actually make your shed. <laughs> <laughs> but bring, bring it back to basics. Uh, and I found I starting at, at level one and building back out was the best thing for me. And looking after the fundamentals and exercises it is still to this day a big part of that. I suppose in 2020, a lot changed as it did for everyone in the country, especially with the pandemic coming along. And... I always explain it is that we've all got a baseline level of stress or anxiety, whatever that might be. Mm. And with the pandemic that comes along, then there's a lot of uncertainty and fear for our lives, I suppose. 
our baselines were already raised, so it took less time, it took less things to happen or less pressure, less stress for us to get to the top of our tolerance and, and sort of overspill, you know, become overwhelmed. So the same as everyone, my baseline came up a little bit during the pandemic. And then from that moment, I suppose, there's been like a bit of a, a timeline of events that you could say that were difficult. Maybe I haven't acknowledged still to this day, maybe I haven't acknowledged a lot of them at the impact that they've had or can have. But from that moment there, I changed job in February 2020, say, for example, started a new job and then the pandemic came and I was sort of relocated to psychiatric wards in Liverpool where I got injured as well. So that was like the sort of start of it where I was I had a really significant back injury for, for six weeks off work and everything during the pandemic. And within that period, you know, a sort of relationship breakdown come on the back of a wedding that was cancelled due to the pandemic. And there was a lot of things that started to go wrong, I suppose. A cocktail where, began yeah, to build. Yeah. And then obviously returning back to work, working throughout the pandemic, supporting people with the mental health, but a lot of it working from home. So there wasn't necessarily people around me to be able to offload to or talk to. So things started building slowly, even though I was quite, you know, I was managing through exercise still. A lot of the gyms closed and I know a lot of people across the country felt the same as myself. Mm. God, that was difficult for me. Yeah, obviously you adapt and you start doing different things. But like a lot of people as well, I suppose I found comfort in having a few more drinks maybe through the week as well. And food wasn't as, as solid as it could have been. And, you know, that combination of things starts having a bit of an impact again. But then moving into a little bit further, as I said, a relationship breakdown, come, move back into my parents and still, while I was processing that, I suppose, there was more things that went on. I had a crash when I, I went away for a couple of days for a break with me uh, brother and ended up you know, having a crash when I was out there, which was quite distressing at the time. It was not necessarily a long-term injury, but it could have been. And it was, you know, at the time, it was a bit of a bad injury. Coming back from that, COVID over the Christmas and New Year, and that was the first time something I'll go into in a little bit, something I've not really spoken much about, especially publicly, is it was the first time I, I ever experienced an intrusive suicidal thoughts at that time in my life. But I was able to manage that again, coming out of the isolation period in the New Year two years ago and getting back to exercise, started managing again. And then on the 12th of January, I broke my collarbone. And it was quite a significant break as well. I was in a difficult part of my shoulder, which needed surgery. I tore my rotator cuff as well. So it needed, the surgery was putting a, a plate in and also reconstructing my shoulder, really putting a, an artificial ligament. That's a long recovery, isn't it? Even for a short-term injury, it's a long recovery to get your shoulders back to where they were. Yeah, so I think it was seven weeks before the surgery as well. So there was a period lying in bed and then the surgery and the recovery from that. You know, luckily I was running my own business at this point, so I was still working from home, which kept me occupied to a degree. But the pain it was, when I look back at things, I always try and make the most difficult things in my life a, a positive somehow. I look for the strength in it, and my pain threshold has obviously gone a lot higher. But my understanding for people in, in pain, I've become a lot more aware of what people mean now. And obviously, I know there will be people who will, would have been in more significant pain than what I was in, but it did feel really that there was a lot of pain. That was there, which was difficult to manage at the time. And obviously, so I started taking prescribed medication, which you do, obviously, painkillers and stuff like that at the time in order to manage. And I suppose during that period, I lost a family member, lost my dad's brother at that time as well. We had the bereavement in the family to so support my dad and, and my family through that time and obviously upset myself. 
that was there. And then it sort of just continued in, in, in that way and until it led to the summer of 2022. Work pressure, work stress, running a business, trying to get that up, up and running. And I suppose everything combinated to, to a period where it started, my thought process had changed because when I look back now, it was because a big part of it was because I couldn't exercise the same way. I couldn't run. I couldn't box, I couldn't do jiu-jitsu, I couldn't lift weights the same the way I was sort of left having to do rehab and I wasn't getting that same relief. Yeah, the buzz, the escapism, yeah. everything, yeah, yeah. I yeah. wasn't able to go to the match, which probably was a, probably was a blessing thinking about it as never. <laughs> um, but it definitely wouldn't have helped with my stress. But, you know, the things that I used to enjoy doing, catching up with friends, I injured myself playing football with my friends and all the things were gone and I was in bed. For a couple of months and I was left with me thoughts of everything that had gone on in the last two years going what's happened here you know what what's happened in my life I couldn't believe it because before then everything was so smooth other than that obviously that period with anxiety 2013 and my thought process started to change and I started becoming a lot more critical about myself I started becoming you know our inner critic our you know some people say the devil or the demon whatever that might be our demons started getting the better of me I started getting in control and it started telling me, you know, I was a loser. Started telling me my internal dialogue become really toxic, really. Started telling me that I wasn't worthy, you know, I was a burden on people. And I started avoiding people because of that, even on the phone. And then with that, what come with that? It was that, as I mentioned before, them intrusive suicidal thoughts, which I never wanted and I never planned to act on them. You know, I had no intention. And what I suppose protected me from that ever becoming a reality was my family around me and wanting to be here as well. So it was quite distressing for me at the time because I'd never experienced it of having suicidal thoughts that you didn't want, but they were intrusive. They were popping in the head as soon as I woke up in the morning. That was the worst time for me. Was that your most difficult moment, mate? I'd say so. I'd say so because it felt relentless as well. So it, it felt like every morning I was waking up and straight away it, it gripped me and you're a loser, you're not worthy, you're a failure. This was me internal dialogue and why don't you take your life? And it was almost like it was trying to convince me. And how I understand it now is that, well, as I mentioned before, that 30 marathons back to back, but for your mind, I drained my own battery. So my battery was on 100%. All these things that happened that took a chunk of my battery away to the point where it was left at zero. And when I was at zero, I was vulnerable to these thoughts coming in. I was vulnerable. I, I, I was emotionally exhausted. I was emotionally you know, mentally drained. And at that point, I was vulnerable for these thoughts coming in. Mm. And I You're like start... Ian Bill, I've got nothing left. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> literally. Yeah, I, I think I remember saying that at one point, just saying I, I've literally got nothing to give. I've got nothing to give people. And and yeah, it was it was a really difficult time. A really difficult time. Unfortunately for me, obviously, I, I was able to get through that through using different methods and, and using people in my life as well. I'm very fortunate to have certain people in my life who, who helped me through that time. So even though it was very difficult, when I look back now in a much better place, I see the strength again in that and going through them moments and being grateful for the people who helped me through that or the things that helped me through that even. Well, let's talk about recovery now. So you spoke to a counsellor and you started therapy. So just tell me about this process and another point where you said you had wrongly convinced yourself you were mentally ill, but in reality, you weren't. You said your guard was down, you had nothing left to give. Just explain how you came to that conclusion and, and the recovery process. So again, as we always do, like I did in 2013, at the time I was keeping that in because I didn't want to tell people and worry people. I didn't want to put that pressure on them. 
And that wasn't necessarily the case. That was, again was in, within me. That was again my internal conversation was having with myself when in reality I had people around me that did care and, and would support me. But, you know, that was a, a big part of me keeping to myself. And with that, I started internalising a lot and thinking, you know, again, I'm not normal. There's something wrong with me. I'm mentally unwell. You know, and I see that with a lot of the men who access us and go, I'm not right, am I? I'm not right in the head. And it's just the case of I was overwhelmed at the time. I was completely overwhelmed with the situation I was faced in. I'm a human being. Why wouldn't I be with all of the, you know, the timeline that was in front of me and not being able to have that, that escape? So... When I look back now, it's easy to understand that. But I, when I was going through it, I felt that there was something wrong and, and there wasn't. But I spoke to a counsellor, which was a huge part. Because I've always supported other people and helped other people. I've never really focused on me. So to, to do that was a big step for myself to sit there and say, this is what's going on. And I almost had that feeling of I wasn't worthy to be sat there because other people's problems are much bigger than mine. It's so people pleasing again, isn't it? Yeah, Putting yeah other people's problems. You, yeah. I, am I taking up someone's space here? And that wasn't the case as soon as I started talking. And obviously the counsellor was great and she really reassured me with that, saying, no, you're absolutely in the right place and you deserve to be here. You want, you know, your needs want to be here. So that was reassuring in that sense. But it, again, it was saying the words out loud. Once I said the words out loud, I went, it's nothing to be afraid of. It's nothing to be scared of. It was when it was inside me, but as soon as I, I let go of it, I felt like I could manage it better. I felt like I had more control over it. And I felt like it wasn't the beast that it felt like it was. If that makes Controlled sense. you, yeah. Absolutely, it was. It was controlling me. It just felt like that pendulum swinged as soon as I started talking about it. And that's why I still do now. I still talk to a counsellor probably on a monthly basis. Even things are going well. You know, talking about things that you know might have impacted me, causing me pressure. And I think what can be really common for myself and for other people is talking to someone who's not necessarily a stranger, but so, talking to someone who's not emotionally involved. Because the neutral arbiter, I call yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Because sometimes you don't want to put that on family or friends or to the the full extent of the situation. So it's really important if that is the case that you do have someone that you can go to and and talk to who's not necessarily as involved or as close as those people. And that's what I found for myself. I felt it very comfortable to talk so to someone, but obviously someone who knew what they were talking about and they do it for a living. Let's reflect on your mental health journey, mate. So similar question as before, what has this mental health journey taught you about yourself? It's taught me that no matter what obstacle that I'm faced with, it's given me belief in myself, I suppose, in order to get through it. It's really highlighted my strengths to me coming through that journey. To, I always said, like, I'm not complacent enough to know that I couldn't be on a mental health ward one day or I couldn't be a patient one day because I think sometimes it can be that a bit of a barrier of us and them in healthcare. I've always said I'm not that complacent that I know I couldn't be on the receiving side of support. And I think this really brought it to life for me. I've always cared and always helped other people. I was then the person that needed help. And I suppose it showed that I was vulnerable. But with that comes strength that I feel very proud of myself at this moment that I did seek support and if I could go back earlier to my old self and say earlier do it as soon as possible and try and reassure myself that's the advice I would give myself now is to talk about it what's going on because by doing that you get control and I think the strengths that I found about myself through that journey again I look back now and say not necessarily that I'm glad it happened 
but it did happen. So I'd rather look back and try and find the strength within that and the, and the positives within it and the character building, I suppose. So that's, I suppose, what I've learned about myself, what strengths do I have rather than focusing on where can I improve or what are my weaknesses, I suppose, that we always look at. What's my strengths? And, and I think I've identified a few of them over the last couple of years. We've come to our final topic of conversation, Andy. It's one I try and have with all of my special guests if we have time. It is a general natter and quick fire chat about mental health. So firstly, how is your mental health, mate? Yeah, it's quite good. It's quite good at the moment. Obviously been up and down, a lot of pressure, stress that can impact our mental health. But at the moment in time, start of a new year, you know, I'm eating well, I'm exercising. The shed, the shed yeah, is well kept. Well and, you know, I'm getting plenty of water in, trying to stay away from, from foods that I know don't do me too good. So, yeah, I suppose I've set myself up and my control of my lifestyle at the moment and, and my habits. And, yeah, I feel, feel in a good place. And what age were you when you became self-aware of your mental health and you realised that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind? I'd probably say around that time, I mentioned before, 2013, if not just before. I'd always said, like, like a lot of people, mental health was a word that I associated with other people or people who were... A hundred percent the same. Yeah, so someone walking down the street talking to themselves, I'd associate growing up and that was stigma yeah. and that was all them things that, that I was guilty of myself back in the day. But I think it was around that time I started realising, well, I'm going to say, I've got mental health and maybe I'm not so different to the people that are walking down the street who were struggling mm. with their mental health. So I think it was around that time, yeah. I think we became self-aware for the first time at the same year then because my first sort of, well, not my first mental health crisis, but the first crisis that I became aware was my first year of university, which was 2012, 2013 as well. That was despite mm. the fact I'd gone through suicidal periods throughout my life. And I was like, hmm, for some reason, I don't think that mental health applies to me, <laughs> even though I was yeah. going through that. Just thought it was me. Well, there you go. Can you tell me, mate, about some of the triggers you have? So they could be things people say to you, a sound, a sensation, a smell, or have you not figured all of them out yet? I'm still learning about myself and I think that's always going to be the case and I think it should be the case for, for all of us. But there are certain things that can happen. So especially if, if I'm around conflict, I don't necessarily like conflict and that can sort of make me tense and make me anxious, even though at the time I can deal with it. It's pre and post, I suppose. It's a people-pleasing thing as well, I think, as well. I'm the same, mate. Yeah, yeah. 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 It's the fight or flight that gets brought up in you. Yeah, absolutely. But at the time, I'm absolutely fine. It's before and after, so I suppose the build up and then afterwards and sort of replaying things and mm. ruminating on things, it can be a little bit difficult. I think when things are chaotic, I like things to be in order. I like things to, to be organised, even though I'm not the most organised person, which is strange. But if things are too chaotic in my life or just too many little bits all adding up, that's what can often make me quite stressed and then affect me mental health on the back of that. But if I feel I've got control of my life and got control of things within my life, then I feel in a better place to be able to, to make decisions then. You've spoken about your first mental health conversation. So tell me about some of the positive tools and methods, maybe outside of having control, that you use to improve your mental health or help you feel better, which ones have worked, and maybe which ones that you've also tried but haven't. So... I would say, well, I mean, first and foremost, exercise is key. I, the shed. Yeah, I'm start using I, that now. The I shed. Prescribe <laughs> that to, to anyone. Exercise, whatever form that comes in. Whatever you find sustainable and helpful, do it. Honestly, mine, obviously, I've had to adapt. Certain ones from the injury that I spoke about earlier. But the ways to adapt. And I've done that now. And I find ways to exercise each day that sort of gives me that release. And I suppose helps me to, to feel like I can compete it's a big part for us men as well to be able to feel that we're, we're in a space where we're competing or we're trying to dominate something. 
I suppose it's primal need for us. So that's really important. So exercise is definitely something that's helped me. Sleep, as I mentioned before, is crucial. I think it's often overlooked. But as I know I overlooked it when I was younger and I was playing on the Xbox till all hours and not getting enough sleep and then going to work or you know, college, whatever it was. But now prioritising sleep, it's crucial. That's where we're, like, you know, our mind is recovering and our body's recovering as well. Absolutely huge. Reading as well. I know we've spoken off air about reading certain books. You know, that's really helped. I, I listen to quite a lot of books as well. And there's certain books that have really helped me over the last couple of years. That's my next question. Tell me which one has been the best for you. I'm reading at the moment for the first time. I'm reading The Chimp Paradox. And a lot of people have told me about it. And I've always said, I'll get round to it. I'll get round to it. But <laughs> I've started a new fitness challenge at the moment. And a part of that fitness challenge, well, I, I suppose it's, it's not just a fitness challenge. It's a self-development mental thing. fitness <laughs> yeah, yeah and a part of it's reading each day so that's the book i've chose to read and it, it seems quite insightful so far for me and I'm, I'm relating a lot to it i would say as well the power of habits another great book that in a part of my life that was it was crucial really in helping me understand my own habits what was helpful and what wasn't helpful and then incorporating new habits once i understood the habit loop when the q routine reward I was able to start looking at it and pinpointing my own habits and just changing subtle things in my life. Say, for example, that one I always talk about is I used to finish work and then my intention was to go to the gym. I'd get home, before I knew it, I was on the couch going, oh, I'll start, I'll go tomorrow instead or I'll go later and then later never happened. All I did was just a simple change of putting my bag in my car. So when I finish work, I have to, I go straight to the gym. Just changing the cue of getting into the car and seeing me bag, there's my cue, right? my new routines, I go straight to the gym. And the reward was that I obviously, I went to the gym and I exercised rather than the reward being, I was sat on the couch with, I don't know, some chocolate or, or something, uh, some some dopamine from that. So yeah, just, just the power of habit was crucial for me. I'm trying to think what other ones as well. There's certain people as well, you know, I've read like, the, I don't know, the David Goggins book in the past, which... Oh, who's going to carry the boats? <laughs> so yeah, I've enjoyed David Goggins' book. He's quite an interesting character. Find it on very, more about very intense. Yeah, man. Eric Thomas, I don't know whether you've ever come across him. He's no. a motivational speaker from America. He does a lot of powerful YouTube videos, which would be considered motivational, which for discipline over motivation from my point of view, but at the same time, it's got its place. And them videos have been very important to me in my recovery. Especially in the you know certain videos that I can probably pinpoint, and if I'm feeling a particular way, I'll put a video of Eric Thomas on. One of them is definitely a go-to for me, and that really helps me just to put me in a better frame of mind. Whether it's, I don't know, it's like a mantra or it's it's some form of comfort that I get from it, and it gives me that that sort of belief back in myself by watching his videos. So that's been a cool part, and he's got a book that I've started reading, and I suppose the last one is I've ever come across Ed Milet's. He's got a book, Go One More. So it's about sort of looking at yourself. And I think he, he related to his dad, who's an alcoholic. And when he gave up, he necessarily didn't say, I'm never drinking again. But he said, I'm just not drinking today. I'm going to go one more day. And it was that sort of process of, I suppose, looking at that 1% better, which is something I quite relate to. And each day, if you can beat your former self, the, the yourself of yesterday, and not who someone else is, that's what you should be doing, competing with yourself. But... 1% better each day is something that I try and keep in and try and just slightly improve. Not have the expectations of me being there, but just make sure I'm continuing that way. So that's another book that's been quite helpful. You've also just answered my next question, which is about mantras. So I've got one more left and it's another broad one. 
What more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds or walks of life feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health if, most importantly, they want to do it? I think what we're doing here today, Freddie, and I know that you've got a great podcast and, and you've spoken very openly about yourself and your own journey. I know the people and other guests have come on and spoken openly. And you're seeing that a lot more now, which is amazing. And it can't be underestimated how powerful that is. It literally does save lives because it does make people feel, you know, especially if people have got to, you can relate to someone and it makes someone say, do you know why I'm going to get support? Maybe it's not this beast is what I, I thought it was. If that person can do it, then I can do it. And I think it's, it's that, it's people talking openly about it. You know, we've got Patrick Pimlet, Paddy the Baddy, UFC star, who's from Liverpool and he does a lot of work and promotion work for James's Place, which is brilliant he's done a video for james's place which is on youtube listeners can have a little watch of that from last year if they want to but he does a lot of promotional work and he talks very openly about it himself his own mental health and i think people who are for very highly of in in communities talking about themselves or talking about it in general is key and making people feel comfortable to be able to do it so i'd say if people feel that they can and they're willing to talk and, and share the vulnerabilities and the sensitivity of, of their own story I definitely encourage people to because you don't realise who might have a positive impact on. You might never be told, you might never find out, but you know, I'd rather live in a world where people would get support on the back of you having the courage to be able to do, talk openly about it. So I definitely say just talk about it. Find someone you trust, find someone that you care about and, and do it. Andy Lad, it has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on the Just Checking In podcast and talking to me. Cheers, Freddie. It's been great to, to be on today. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Really enjoyed it. Well, that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In pod. I want to say a big thank you to Andy for being my special guest and for letting me check in with him. If you know a loved one who is male and requires James's Place support, you can visit jamesesplace.org.uk slash support. And as we stated in the podcast, James's Place offers free, life-saving treatment for suicidal men in London and the Northwest. And I'll also put that link in the show notes. As always, thank you to all the venters who've tuned into this episode. Remember, if you've liked what you've heard, please give it a share on social media. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it. If you're feeling generous, write us a review and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. If you like what we're doing at Vent, please consider supporting us by going to www.patreon.com slash VentHelpUK or make a one-off donation to our GoFundMe or go to our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash VentHelpUK. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, guys, it is always okay to vent. Vent.